the ability to pursue unrestrained desire. For others, liberty is an aid in the pursuit of a meaningful life. One group asks, what is allowed? What can I get away with? The other group asks, what is good? How can I fulfill my purpose? And these groups exist not only in our culture, but even within Christianity. You will find some Christians who are always pushing boundaries for no apparent reason. They seek what they may call relevance, but you can't always discern why they want to be relevant. They're always asking how far they can go, what is allowed, is it a sin to do this, is it a sin to do that. They want to know how far they can go and still be considered a Christian. On the other hand, there are those who are celebrating their liberty in Christ in a little bit different way by how they can best express the good news about Jesus through their lives. They're not interested in what they can get away with and still be a Christian. They're interested in how they can become more like Jesus. They don't see Christianity as a religious tradition by which they're going to get into heaven if they fulfill some basic minimalistic requirements without really trying to do much more. Instead, they see it as a declaration of independence from a life lived in the ever-narrowing pursuit of self in order to pursue God and his purposes. These camps aren't always totally distinct, even as none of us are perfect yet in our lives. We may be maximizing our liberty in Christ in one area, living as freely in Jesus as we can, but failing to take advantage of the liberty Christ gives in another. We may have thought carefully about certain behaviors, but failed to see how some of our own habits actually hurt rather than help our liberty in Christ. Last week, Pastor Franco spoke from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 about the cross-examined life and how we are to look at our lives, not in terms of what we're free to do, but in terms of how our lives are shaped by the love of God that was demonstrated through the cross of Jesus. And that passage was focused on this question of food that had been offered to idols and whether Christians were free to eat that kind of food. And in chapter 10, which we're looking at this morning, Paul brings that question to its close, to its end. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, which were the ending verses you spoke about last week or you heard about last week, Paul wrote this. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's not a thoughtless, undisciplined life that makes a person free. Instead, freedom comes from discipline. Many people run in a race, but only one person wins that race and receives the prize. So too, many people take the name Christian. But does that word mean that you will inherit the prize of eternal life? Does attendance at church or baptism mean that you will automatically inherit eternal life? Does the fact that you're from a Christian family or that you prayed a prayer in a service at one point now make you free to live according to whatever whims or desires you have rather than intentionally according to the cross. Maybe we could put it this way. 
is your liberty as a Christian maximized through the pursuit of your own desires while claiming that you're free in Christ, or is your liberty maximized by becoming like Christ in glorifying God and laying down your life for others? The answer that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that you can maximize your liberty by intentionally living for the gospel. How do you intentionally live for the gospel like the apostle Paul did? Verses 31 to 33 give us two instructions that will help us to live this kind of life. They say this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So let's take a look at how Paul applied these instructions to the situations that the Corinthians were facing and how they might apply in our lives. How do we live a life that maximizes the liberty we have in Jesus through focused, intentional focus on a gospel-centered life. And the first thing that Paul instructs is this, do everything to glorify God. Here's an important question that we all have to answer at some point as Christians. Is there something that is more important for fulfillment and happiness than the gratification of my desires? Do you exist for more than your own comfort and the immediate gratification of physical desire? Is there an overarching purpose or worth or meaning in life that you should be pursuing? People answer this question in a variety of ways. Some Eastern religions teach that you need to let go of all desire in order to find fulfillment. A more secular Western worldview may lead to the conclusion that you should simply pursue pleasure however you can and define your life by your desires almost exclusively. Some pursue it through the immediate gratification of alcohol or marijuana or drugs or casual sex. Others pursue it through greed and the pursuit of wealth. Others seek it through status and success in some sport or in their field of work or in their physique. But the Christian answer is that the overarching purpose of life is to glorify God. And to glorify God broadly means that you live in a manner that pleases him and reveals his character to others. Of course, you cannot reveal what you don't know, which leads us to an important point about glorifying God, which is that when you glorify God, you share in or you partake in his glory. This is important. Psalm chapter 73, 24 to 28 says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Jesus said to his disciples, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. As I've said to you before, and I'll say again, God's glory and your good are not at odds. 
Those are not competing interests. Sometimes it might feel that way in this life. Because of the desires of your flesh, sometimes it can feel painful to choose to live in a way that glorifies God rather than satisfies your pleasures or your desires. But this is the way to real life. It leads to eternal life, to life of joy, joyful relationship with God, and unity with each other, even as Jesus told his disciples. But if the goal of life is to glorify God, then we need to understand that there are some things that are totally incompatible with God's glory. These things are not matters of Christian freedom. They're not gray areas. They're not things that, well, maybe some can do it with a clear conscience and others can't. There are some things that are just incompatible with Christian liberty, and we should not flirt with them. We should flee from them. And Paul specifically says this about idolatry. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's taking the example when he said, everyone in a race runs, but only one wins. He's taking that and he is now applying it scripturally to the Corinthians. He's showing them how this has already happened in their own past to their forefathers. He used the example from Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their wilderness wanderings to illustrate his point. These were the forefathers of the Jews, but they are also the spiritual forefathers of Christians, of us. They all participated in the Exodus events when God parted the Red Sea and they crossed through on dry ground and were freed from Pharaoh's tyranny. It was a kind of baptism for them, even as Christians passed through the waters of baptism into the life of Christ. They all ate the supernatural bread that God provided, the manna in the wilderness, just as we eat the bread of the Lord's Supper. They all drank the water that God supernaturally provided for them in the wilderness, just as we drink the Lord's cup, supernaturally provided for us through the death of Jesus that we might be forgiven of our sins. And while they could not have known the details at the time, just as Christ provided his blood for us that we might be saved, it was Christ who was making provision for them in the wilderness. Even though they all participated in these events, and they all called themselves Israel, they all called themselves God's people. Notice what Paul says. Most of them died in the wilderness. In fact, all but two died in the wilderness 
without experiencing the promise God had made to bring them into the promised land. And Paul's logic is clear. If they all participated in these things and yet were subject to God's wrath, will baptism in the Lord's Supper protect you if you continually rebel against God? The answer is no. While there are matters of freedom in which we as Christians have to learn to use our discernment as we walk with Christ, there are some things that are totally incompatible with the Christian life. And if we continually excuse those things in our lives, we make ourselves incompatible with eternal life, with God's purposes. One of those things is idolatry. Remember the issue that Paul was addressing in chapters 8 through 10 is of eating meat offered to an idol or offered to a false god. One context in which this meat would have been eaten occurred during a meal at an idol's temple. This was a common practice and was one in which some in the Corinthian church had apparently chosen to continue to participate. They felt the liberty to continue to do that as Christians. And so they would go to a temple that was dedicated to an idol and they would eat a meal that was dedicated to a false god. They knew, as Paul affirmed in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, that idols are not really gods since there is only one God. So what harm could there possibly be in maintaining their social ties and eating a meal in an idol's temple? Well, plenty. Read verses 15 to 22 with me. Paul writes, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about when you take the Lord's Supper or communion. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? When we drink the cup of communion, we are recognizing that we're joined to Christ by his blood. When a believer eats the bread of communion, we recognize that we're part of Christ's body and we have fellowship with one another. So too in the Old Testament, when a Jew brought a certain kind of sacrifice to the temple, part of that sacrifice would be given to him and he would eat that sacrifice in the temple precincts with his family. And it would be an indication that he was eating in the presence of God, that God was the host of the meal, and that he was part of God's people, part of the community, and have fellowship with God. This was the common understanding of sacrificial meals. It was the common understanding of the Lord's Supper, and so too it was the common understanding of meals eaten in idols' temples. How could one claim simultaneously to be a member of Christ's body through the Lord's Supper and to be a member of a community dedicated to idolatry by eating in an idol's temple. Even more, Paul pointed out that while idols are not gods, as if they can rival the, the one true God in power or in authority or in character, that doesn't mean that there is no spiritual being at work in an idol's temple. 
On the contrary, demons were at work there. So to participate in a meal at an idol's temple was to open oneself to the influence of the demonic. Worse, it would be to provoke God to jealousy as the Israelites did in the Old Testament through their idolatry. Now at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, what's the point for me? I've not driven by any idol's temples lately, and even if I did, I would not be tempted to go inside and eat there. Perhaps, but I want you to go back with me to verses seven to 10 and and take a look at some of the actions associated with idolatry in the Bible. First, verse seven associates idolatry and revelry. This is boisterous, undisciplined partying. It is allowing passions and desires to take over your life and your actions rather than being self-controlled and walking in the spirit. It probably included illicit sex. And verse eight doesn't leave us wondering because it says that Israel indulged in sexual immorality and 23,000 of them were killed in a plague. Sexual immorality is often associated with idolatry in the Bible, and you don't have to have some kind of explicit worship of another god for sexual immorality to actually constitute idolatry. A lifestyle that flaunts God's intentions for sex within the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman is a failure to acknowledge God. It is an exaltation of your desires over his purposes, and therefore it is a kind of of idolatry. Verse nine warns us not to put Christ to the test as some of them did. This likely refers to Numbers 21, one through nine, where Israel's sin was impatience with God and his leadership of them and his plan for them. They complained about the way God was providing for them and they wanted to abandon that way and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And God, as a result, sent a plague of snakes that killed many of them. Finally, verse 10 says that many of them were grumblers and probably refers to their unwillingness to enter the promised land and how they were sent into the wilderness to wander for 40 years and die until God brought the next generation into the promised land. So you may not go into an idol's temple to eat there, but there are still temptations that you face that are utterly incompatible and contrary to God's glory and they're incompatible with a relationship to God. It is not a matter of Christian freedom to continue a lifestyle of evil desires and not walk by the Spirit. It is not a matter of Christian freedom to live a lifestyle of sexual immorality. If you're excusing a lifestyle of illicit sex outside of marriage or addiction to pornography or some other kind of sexual immorality in your life, then this is not a matter of you saying, well, I'm free in Christ, or God will forgive me, or it's no big deal, as if God is simply going to overlook that thing. You are in danger of eternal judgment. You're in danger of hell if you continue in that way. Paul says, only one wins the race. Just because you put the label Christian on it, just because you enter the race, doesn't mean you win. He says there were many Jews who were in the wilderness. They all passed through baptism. They all ate the supernatural bread God provided, and most of them died there and didn't reach the promise of God. His warning to you is clear. If you're walking in a way that is contrary to God's ways, do not excuse yourself and call it Christian freedom. What about a life that questions Christ and his ways, that is looking to culture to guide rather than to God's word, that grumbles about God's provision or the leaders that God provides, rather than submitting to God's word, submitting to God's direction, and even receiving difficulties in the knowledge that God is shaping and refining you. That kind of 
grumbling is incompatible with God's glory. Let me add this as well. Dabbling in spiritism or the occult is not compatible with a Christian life. You cannot go have your palms read and, tr and trust that the Lord is the one who knows the beginning from the end and is in control of your life and guiding your life. You can't look at the stars or your horoscope to find out what your future holds and believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who directs your life and Jesus holds your future. It may be obvious to most, but there, there may be some here who need to understand that you cannot participate in a seance or play with a Ouija board or subscribe to all kinds of superstitions and believe that God has a call and a purpose for your life that will be realized only through submission to him. If you're doing these kinds of things, you need to stop. You need to stop from those things. You need to flee from that idolatry. Don't tempt God. You're in danger, not only of opening yourself to the influence of the demonic and of fear in your life, you're in danger of arousing God's jealousy and wrath against your life. And you need to stop. You need to, you need to instead of thinking that you're exercising your freedom in Christ, by doing things that are incompatible with a Christian life, you need to instead turn that freedom and say, I wanna walk in a life that is free from things that dishonor God. The good news is that God has given everything you need to overcome temptation. Whatever desire you have, Paul writes, it is not uncommon, it's common to man. You're not the first person to experience that temptation. God is not unaware of it. He is not unable to help you through it. In fact. Paul writes, he's faithful. He won't allow temptation into your life that is more than you will be able to bear without his help. I impossible to overcome without his help. He always provides a way out. He's faithful. He will be with you in it when you will submit to him. But as he provides the way out in his strength and in his power, you must take the way out. You must take the way he provides. It's clear that there are some things that are incompatible with God's glory. But there are other things that are not so cut and dry. So how are you going to, to know if something that could be good will glorify God? Consider verse 23, Paul writes this, all things are lawful or acceptable, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So if you're wondering, this decision appears neutral, it doesn't seem like it's incompatible with God, and yet how will I know if this thing will glorify God? If my goal is to maximize my freedom in God, and the way to do that is to live a life that glorifies God in every way, how will I know in matters that seem neutral, what will glorify God? First, Paul says, ask, is this helpful? Does it provide some advantage or add something good to your life? Or is it merely the pursuit of momentary pleasure? Does it give you a genuine outlet for praising God and pointing to him, or is it something that just turns you inward to yourself? This might be a good question for us to ask concerning many of our entertainments and technology choices. Does how I spend my time on my phone or on entertainment provide something genuinely good or advantageous to my life, or does it merely add to my anxiety? You're not saying, phone bad, can't do, you're saying, is this beneficial? Is this helpful? Does it add to God's glory? Next, ask, does it build up? Here you're not only asking if it gives some advantage to your life, but if it adds something good 
to others. If it's an action that has the potential to tear others down, then it does not glorify God. This question reminds us that glorifying God is not something that is abstract and it can't be separated from our relationships with other people. The way we glorify God is most often by building others up, adding to their lives and increasing their love for and their satisfaction in Jesus. Finally, if you wanna know if an action that isn't clearly outside God's will is going to glorify him, ask if it will represent Christ in such a way that draws others to him. Look at verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul was concerned that as many people as possible might be saved. I wonder how much such a motive would change our daily lives, our habits, and our decisions. If our goal was that as many as possible would be saved, how would that affect how you spend your time, or how you make decisions, or how you use your resources? Would it change your lifestyle in any way? Would it change how much you thought about yourself? Would it change the kinds of purchases that you make? Surely, for most of us, it would. Many things in life, in fact, most things in life, are not obviously sinful and incompatible with faith in Christ. We should flee those things that are, but for those that aren't, how do we do everything to glorify God? We ask, is it helpful? Does it build others up? And does it draw the lost to Christ? What keeps us from living that way? I, I'd suggest that most often what keeps us from living this way is fear that we won't actually be happy when we do it or that we won't have what we need from God. But God promises to supply our needs and claims to be the source of our joy. David testified in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If God created you, if he's the one who redeemed you with the life of his son Jesus, surely he knows what is best for you, and he also knows where real joy comes from. And so our fear that if I live a life that answers these questions in a manner that glorifies God, if I live a life that maximizes my freedom in Christ by doing everything to God's glory, will I be happy, will I be, will I be provided for? The Bible answers that, God answers that in the affirmative, yes, because joy comes from God's presence and provision comes from his hand and so if you will live to glorify him, you will be more joyful and your needs will be met because God will be the one taking care of those things. The second instruction Paul gave regarding maximizing your liberty by intentionally living for the gospel is that you should avoid causing offense to others. Look at verses 25 to 31. He says this, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
So Paul's concern earlier in the chapter was to make it plain that believers can't go to an idol's temple and participate in a meal there. However, there was another situation regarding food that had been sacrificed to idols that was very common. Some of the meat that was sacrificed to idols would be taken to the market and it would be sold there and it had previously been offered to an idol. There weren't product labels indicating meat sacrificed to idols, meat not sacrificed to idols. Those didn't exist. And so devout Jews were normally very scrupulous about where their meat came from. So it's a bit surprising to hear Paul say that Christians could eat whatever was sold there and they didn't need to ask questions about it. And here Paul demonstrates that he didn't have a magical view of the world. He had a spiritual view of the world. Some Christians have gotten so concerned about demons that they live in fear and they cause fear in other people as well. They search their homes for things that could possibly, potentially, maybe have some association with the demonic and they tell other people to do the same. They search their family tree to find out if a relative was into witchcraft three generations ago and then they worry about opening a door to the demonic in their lives. Paul had no such scruples. He quotes Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and he makes a distinction between going to the temple and participating in a meal there and eating meat sold in the the meat market that had been sacrificed to an idol because what difference should that make to you? As a Christian, you live under the rule and the reign of God. You don't have to walk in constant fear that you will accidentally do something that gives the enemy a foothold in your life. God is in control. And a demon is no challenge to him. He has not given demons authority in your life. So if you're not giving into temptation to sin, Paul does warn us, if you you give into temptation, you can open the door to the enemy. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. So there are sins that open the door to the enemy in our lives. He warns us not to eat in an idol's temple, an obvious act of joining ourselves in an act of worship to a false god. That would be opening a door to the, de- to the demonic. But if you're not doing something clearly contradictory to God's glory, then you don't have to live in fear that the demons are gonna get in somehow. However, Paul brought up another scenario in which a believer went to eat at an unbeliever's house and was warned, apparently by another unbeliever before the meal, that the meat had previously been sacrificed to an idol. Does that mean anything for the believer? No. There there weren't demons in the meat, eating the meat. The meat was created by God. It was an animal made by God, and so he could give give thanks to God for it, and he would be fine eating that meat. But the unbeliever thought that he was warning him, and if the believer flaunted that warning, the unbeliever may have misunderstood and thought that Christianity is compatible with idolatry, that you could be both a Christian and participate in idolatry. The believer was free to eat because he was not participating in idol worship, but the unbeliever did not understand that freedom and interpreted it as unfaithfulness to God. And because of that potential, Paul says, that if you may wound someone else's conscience, that is, if your freedoms cause confusion or stumbling for someone to come to Christ, then you should forego your freedom for the sake of witness. The point is this, over the course of your lifetime, there are going to be many, many decisions that you make that are neutral. 
They don't obviously contradict God's ways and aren't clearly forbidden in the Scripture. You are free to do them. But by doing them, you could compromise your ability to witness to someone else and confuse the gospel for them, making it harder for them to receive the good news about Jesus. You could insist that as a believer, you have the right to go to a fancy restaurant in the casino. You know that gambling is wrong, but you're not going to be gambling. And when an unbelieving coworker overhears you discussing your plans, she may say, I thought Christians weren't supposed to participate in things like the casino. And you could assert your Christian rights in that moment. You could try to re-educate her about what Christians really think, or as Paul says, you could understand that from her perspective, going to the casino is going to the casino. And it is incompatible, in her view, with what you claim to believe about Jesus, being your provider and your redeemer from the kinds of things that typically happen at a casino. Is it more freeing to assert your right or to give it up in order to more clearly present Christ? Paul says it is more freeing to give your right up in order to more clearly present Christ. What if there's a particular artist that you listen to, but you only listen to the clean songs? And when one of your friends asks who your favorite artist is, and you name her, he replies, I didn't think that Christians listened to things like that. Is it more important for you to assert your rights as a Christian or to demonstrate how God has redeemed you out of the world and can redeem your coworker or your friend as well? Imagine that there's a particular outfit that you want to wear and a new believer who has just come out of the world and a culture of lust and flirtation says to you, I didn't think Christians were supposed to dress like that. Should you grow offended and assert your freedom in Christ? Or should you recognize that your freedom could potentially become a stumbling block that would lead that new Christian back into a lifestyle of promiscuity? Now, I know that you may be saying to yourself that these circumstances aren't black and white, and of course, that's the point. They aren't black and white, and you're going to face many circumstances in your life that are not black and white, where you believe that you are free as a Christian to do something that would not be clearly sinful. But by doing it, you may scandalize either an unbeliever or a young believer and cause them to fall into sin or confusion about what the gospel is and who God really is. Is the life that is most free the one that asserts all its rights, or is the life that is most free the one where you freely choose to give up some rights in order to benefit others and glorify God? Paul says it's the latter. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. He doesn't mean don't hurt anybody's feelings. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about don't scandalize someone in a way that keeps them from knowing Christ. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So how do you live the life that is most free in Christ? Is that accomplished by boldly asserting that as a Christian, you're free to do as you please because you're already covered by baptism and communion? Is it by ignoring how your actions will affect others? Or is it by seeking to glorify God in all you do, even in things as simple as eating and in drinking, 
and by gladly giving up your rights in order to make Christ's message of redemption clear to as many people as you possibly can. It's the latter. The person who can gladly give up their rights for others demonstrates a depth of freedom in his soul that is much greater than the person who feels compelled to constantly push for his rights in order to prove that he is free. Paul closes by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If you were here last week, you already heard from chapter 9 some of the rights that Paul himself gave up in order to make sure that he didn't place a stumbling block to the gospel in front of anyone. Even as he was following someone else's example, he was following Jesus' example. My youngest son, Titus, uh, he's seven, and he is a really kind of happy, easygoing, likable kid. I was commenting to Andrea a few days ago how we've probably babied him a little bit longer than our other kids, but that he's starting to lose some of his childlike ways and some of his childlike ways of talking. He will often enthusiastically repeat my opinion about things, which I love, frankly. He just repeats what I say or repeats my opinion about things, which I think is fantastic. If I say, that was a lot of fun, he says, oh yeah, that was a lot of fun. If I say, we've got to keep looking out the window for moose, he says, yeah, we're, we're gonna see a moose. He, we, he's, he's just, he's an upbeat, likable, easygoing guy, and he often imitates and affirms what I say. If we've got a difficult or uncomfortable situation, I might say, this may be hard, but we can do it, and he says, yeah, we can do it. <laughs> so too, we should be with Jesus like those who want to follow him closely. Jesus did not seek his own rights. He sought the glory of God in his life. He came to do God's will. His life's mission was not to protect what he believed were his rights or what he was owed, but to give himself up for you. You know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us to give himself as an offering freely. He died for our sin, to pay the debt that we owed to God because we had been rebellious against him and failed to acknowledge him. And as a result, Jesus lived a life in which he acknowledged God perfectly in every way. Everything that he did, he did to glorify God. And everything that Jesus did, he did that he might also build us up. And that meant that he gave up his right. He gave up his right to life. He gave up his right for his voice to be heard in court. He gave up his right to, to the liberties that should have been his as the Son of God. He gave those up, and he died so that you might know what real freedom is. That freedom is not merely pursuing the, your own rights and desires to their fullest extent, but freedom is the ability to say, I live for God's glory because he's the one who gives joy, and I live to build others up because God will take care of my needs. And when we will live that way, we will be people who maximize our liberty in Jesus, not by trying to grasp at things, but by freely living for the glory of God and for the good of others. Listen, if you want to maximize your liberty in Jesus, that starts, first of all, with understanding what Christ has done for you. I said a moment ago that Jesus died for your sin. It's absolutely true. God sent his son Jesus to die in your place that you might be able to have a relationship with God through him. He did that because you are not going to be able to earn God's favor apart from him. The Bible says that we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. Sin is 
rebellion against God. It's, it's disobeying God. It's when God says you should live this way and we choose to live another way. Maybe at a more simple level, we could even say that sin is a failure to acknowledge God. You might say, well, not acknowledging somebody. What, what, what's the big deal? Anybody wants me to say thank you to him or what? Yes, but it's more than that. I mean, imagine God has created everything. He's made the world and he made you. And imagine that he has made you to know him, to live for him, to represent him in the world, and yet you decide, I'm gonna live as if he doesn't exist. I don't care. I don't want his way. I don't like his way. I don't think his way is best. And you then, in your actions, in your words, in your thoughts, you say, I'm not gonna acknowledge God in what I do with my life. That's what sin is. The Bible says we've all done that. We've all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. And once it's done, there's not a real way for us to, to repair that. We failed to acknowledge God. The deed is done. The sin has been committed. And our lives of rebellion have begun. There's no way out except that God loved you even though you had failed to acknowledge him. And so he sent his son Jesus. Jesus gave up his rights in order that he might win you. He died in order that he might pay your debt that your sin might be forgiven and you might have a relationship with God that is restored, that you might begin to acknowledge God in all your ways, that your life might not be the ever-narrowing, ever-darkening pursuit of self, but might be expanding into his goodness, his glory, the ever-expanding pursuit of God and his ways, his wisdom and his love. And what this requires of you is faith can't earn God's favor, and faith is not a means to do that. But faith is recognizing what God has done. Faith acknowledges what God has done. Faith starts with confession, Lord, I have done wrong. I failed to acknowledge you. It continues to repentance. I want to be right with you, Lord. It recognizes Jesus. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sin, that you raised him from the dead on the third day to give me new life. And then faith does something that just the word belief or, or, or something like that doesn't quite communicate. Faith says, I trust that not only did Jesus die for me, but that I died in him. And I trust that when Jesus was raised from the dead, not only was he raised, but that he wants to raise me as well. And he'll raise me now spiritually, but he'll also raise me in the future to eternal life with him so that I do not spend an eternity separated from him in hell, but I will know his joy and his presence forever. I'm gonna ask if you just close your eyes for a moment. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus today, it's available to you by faith. It's not something you earn, deserve, that you try to get. It is a acknowledgement of God and his ways in your life by faith. If you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, you know you've been rebelling against God, you failed to acknowledge him, you know you're living a life of sin, or may I add this, perhaps you call yourself a Christian, but you have been participating in things that you know are incompatible with Christianity. And so while you've got the label and you can say, I'm, I started the race, you cannot legitimately say, I'm running to win. 
You can't legitimately say that I'm actually in this and I believe that God has rescued me and redeemed me. You can't actually legitimately say I'm in Christ and I have eternal life. No, for you, Christianity has become religion. It's a label. You say, I was baptized, I take the Lord's Supper, and then you live and do things that are totally incompatible with God. If you don't know him as your Savior, you never have, or you claimed him as your Savior, but today you know the conviction that I am living a life incompatible with that. The good news is the same for both. God loves you. He sent his son Jesus to redeem you, and he will do that by his grace if you will put your faith in him today, confessing your sin, repenting, and believing in Jesus. If that's you, I want to pray for you this morning. This prayer won't save you. Faith in Jesus saves you. Jesus redeems you. But I want to help you express that faith in him, and I want to give you the opportunity to respond in that faith this morning. So if you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you want to begin that today or you've claimed to have that but you know that you've been living a life incompatible with the good news of Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something simple. This doesn't save you but it does give me a chance to acknowledge and pray with you. If you would just lift up your hand this morning. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus or you've been living a life incompatible with what you claim and you want to confess that sin and be right with God today, you want to receive his salvation, thank you. Is there anybody else? If you're online, thank you, sir. If you're online and you'd like to respond, you can just text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061. We'll respond to you that way. Is there anybody else? I'm gonna pray this prayer, and that prayer won't, this prayer, these words don't save you, but faith in Christ saves you as you will express it. So as I pray, you make this your prayer in your heart. Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, and I confess that I failed to acknowledge you. I've lived in sin, and I've rebelled against you. And I confess that that was wrong and I've sinned against you. Today, Lord, I have heard your word and I believe it. I believe that Jesus died for me. And I believe that you raised him from the dead on the third day. And I'm asking you to forgive my sin. And I'm asking you that you would raise me to new life in Jesus. Today, Lord, I no longer want to live for self. I want to live for your glory. I want to know not the joy of pursuing my own pleasure, but I want to know the joy of your presence. Today, Lord, I want to know not the freedom of just living for my own desires. I want to know the freedom that comes from knowing your purpose and your plans for my life. I thank you for that, Lord. I confess my sin. I give it to you. I lay it down and turn away from it, and I turn to Jesus and ask that you would save me by his death and resurrection. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I want to encourage you that before you would leave, you would find a pastor, or when the service is over, there will be some prayer partners here at the front of the, of the sanctuary. If you would come and speak to one of them, they have a book that they would like to give to you. They would also love to pray with you and help you understand where do you go from here. Christian, there are many things that we face in our lives where we're called to ask the question, am I free as a Christian to do this? Some of those things are obviously incompatible with a life of, of, of belief in God. But there are many things that we'll face that it could be either way, and you won't be sure. But what we can do is live according to the principles that God's Word teaches us. That is, live a life that seeks first to glorify God and then seeks the good of others that as many as possible might know who Jesus is, that God's character would be communicated clearly to them. I want you to do this. This is your assignment for Father's Day, all right? Uh, you can go home, you can barbecue meat, you can grill it, you can do whatever you want with it without worries about where it came from. Paul says that. But here is your assignment. 
that you would say, if I were to live my life for God's glory and for the good of others, if I were really to make that my aim, if I were to say, I want as many as possible to see God and his glory through me as clearly as possible, what would change in your life? What would be different tomorrow morning in your Monday routine? What would be different in how you conduct yourself at work? What would change in your life if you were to say, my goal, my chief end is to glorify God and to point as many other people to him as possible? Would you stand with me and let's close together in prayer. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the grace that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that in Jesus, you've given us great freedom. We thank you, Lord, in fact, that you give us more freedom, that the liberty we have in Christ is greater than the slavery we had without him. We thank you, Lord, that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And we also thank you that that liberty does not lead us into the ever-darkening and narrowing pursuit of self, but it leads us into your glory, into your goodness, into your favor, into your joy, into your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us of anything that has been a distraction from glorifying you. We ask that our love of you would overwhelm our desires of this world. We ask that our love of your glory would overwhelm and consume every distraction and that we might truly live as people whose chief goal, whose primary purpose and aim is that we might glorify you and draw as many others to you as possible. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, we believe. Amen. And if you responded today to the call, prayer partners, go ahead and come up. Please come if you gave your life to Christ and speak with one of our prayer partners. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you again on Wednesday for prayer meeting. Dads, don't forget to enjoy a root beer float. Until Wednesday, go in God's grace and peace.